Hello and welcome back to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library, Geneva. I'm Natalie Alexander, and in this episode we continue our Hashtag Multilateralism 100 series, where we look at the issues and the people who've shaped multilateralism over the past 100 years since the League of Nations began and transitioned to the United Nations today. In this episode, we are taking you on a tour back to the time of the League and also its first Secretary General, Eric Drummond, as I had the chance to speak to one of the authors of a book published this year called Eric Drummond and His Legacies, The League of Nations and the Beginnings of Global Governance. John Burley is a former UN staff member who worked for more than 30 years in different parts of the UN system. And in this conversation, he shares with us his insights into his research for this book. The term multilateralism didn't exist yet at the time, but how did the work of the League and Drummond help to shape the multilateral system and the international civil service of today? I learned some new ideas and perspectives, and hope you did too. This episode also comes with some visual pieces from our archives at the library, so take a look if you're interested at the podcast description for these, and also some links to some further learning and reading. In the meantime, let's take a listen. John Burley, many thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you back. You've been a recent visitor to the library as a speaker this year. And we wanted to have you in the studio to talk particularly about your knowledge of the League of Nations and Eric Drummond, the first Secretary General of the League of Nations. Could you tell us how you came to be a part of this book? What interests you so much about this subject? I have always been a bit of a history buff. Um, that was part of my degree at uh, Cambridge. And I, when I was even working at the UN, knew quite a bit of the history of the UN. After retiring, I kept up an interest and someone asked me to write an article on the origins of ECOSOC. And that took me to something which happened in the League of Nations, in fact, right at the end of the 1930s, called the Bruce Report. Uh, the Australian ambassador to London was a chairman of a group of experts advising on how to develop the economic and social work of the League. The report was published literally a few days before Hitler invaded Poland and the outbreak of the Second World War. But it, in fact, provided the basis subsequently for the establishment of ECOSOC. And that led to an interest in the history of the League. I met uh, some of my co-authors in England, and they were looking for somebody to help them in writing the book about a Drummond who lived in the Geneva area because they wanted to access the League of Nations archives in the Palais de Nation. So one thing led to another. It was um, a great experience, absolutely no regrets. One thing which I'll say at this stage is that the book is a bit of a revisionist history of the League. And I've always been interested in, in that side of history, to take to the unorthodox view, challenging the prevailing wisdom in, in a sense. And that is, in fact, lies through much of the book on Eric Drummond and his, and his legacies. Tell us a little bit more about the book, because the League, of course, transitioned to the United Nations that we have today. But there are arguably many elements of the League that influenced and contributed to multilateralism and the multilateral system. What is this book about? What does it aim to pass on? Uh, we hope that the reader will have a better understanding of the origins of the international civil service, the origins of the international administration, 
and benefit from that in understanding how the international civil service has evolved. What happened in 1919 when Eric Drummond was appointed by name, in fact, at the Paris Peace Conference in the Covenant of the League when it was adopted, he had no guidance from countries, uh, from the, the, the great powers at the Paris Peace Conference. It was an open door. But there were two options facing the, those who were responsible for the establishment of the League. One would have had an international secretariat comprised of staff seconded from national ministries of foreign affairs and owing loyalty back to their national governments and working together on ad hoc assignments. Fortunately, Eric Drummond was of a different, had a different view as to what was required, and he genuinely believed in an international secretariat where the staff would owe loyalty only to that organization and they will be employed by and paid by and working for an international cause. It is that which was established thanks to Drummond and people close to him at the time, including a very well-known Frenchman, Jean Monnet, who subsequently went on to be associated with the founding of what is now the European Union, but other people who had worked together during the war in a common cause, in a common purpose. And it was that model which served as a basis for the establishment of the Secretariat of the League, and is that which in fact has endured for a hundred years. And therefore we find that if those who are interested in reading the book will see how the Secretariat evolved, what it was like working in the Secretariat, the esprit de Genève, which was um, this, uh, the spirit of the 1920s in Geneva, where the League had the greatest amount of attraction and interest and uh, success, and how all of that influenced and led to uh, the uh, new generation of international organizations, which were established after the Second World War. Okay, so this is the spirit of, of the book. Tell us a little bit more about Eric Drummond, the first Secretary General of the League of Nations. Many of our listeners might know his name, but might not know a lot more about him or, or much about him. What was his story? What was he like? And what do you think he brought to the League at the time? You're quite right in saying he's not, a, he's not exactly a household name. When I told many of my former colleagues that I was writing a book about Eric Drummond, their basic reaction was, who's, who's he? He's a very interesting person. And in fact, in almost all respects, there is one which I'll come to. He, uh, his character and his personality and the way in which he worked uh, served as a model for uh, what we would regard today as a very good executive um, executive head. He came from the British Foreign Office. At that time, the British Foreign Office was well regarded as being very able in defending uh, the interests of, of Britain, of Great Britain. And that, we, I find, is interesting because... In fact, Drummond was a true internationalist in outlook um, and in the way in which he uh, behaved. He uh, spoke good French and good German. He had traveled widely in Europe at the turn of the century. He was a, an outstanding student at Eton in um, the UK, but he didn't go on to university. He was contemplative, but very decisive. He moved very quickly in the early days to set up the, the League along the lines which I've just uh, described. 
He was a consensual man. He, he sought different opinions. He allowed discussions to take place. But his character and manners created um, trust and confidence, um, both amongst his senior secretariat uh, colleagues and with uh, member states. And he was always accessible and always welcomed a consultation and the sharing of uh, different uh, views. He had uh, no room for prejudice. He told his senior colleagues that uh, the covenant implied equal liberty and independence for all races. And it, he was self-effacing. And all of his, uh, all of his aspects of his uh, personality shaped the secretariat's uh, character. There were two cartoonists who were very uh, well known in Geneva in the 1920s and 1930s, Derso and Kellen. And their cartoons, which appeared in the newspapers, and you can in fact see them around the, the Palais de Nation now, often portray um, Eric Drummond as engaged in a friendly uh, conversation. He liked um, people to smile, but he was also, as you can see in their cartoons, f uh, financially very prudent and uh, as a rule maker. Uh, he laid down uh, the rules both for the Secretariat and for member states, and he expected after uh, consultation about the nature of the rules, those rules to be uh, followed. He was popular with the press. He was intuitively democratic. Some say that he showed the characteristics of a, of a, a chieftain of a Scottish clan, because in fact he was uh, the chief of the clan. Um, and the clan uh, motto was advance with caution, which he seemed to apply in much of his work in the, uh, the, in, in the League. And he was always concerned to maintain the good reputation of the League, and he expected his staff to, to do the, the same thing. How do you think the, that these characteristics translated into his role as the first Secretary General? How did they help him or uh, influence his contribution to the League at the time? He, the, the characteristics which he showed brought out what the League staff tried to do, uh, which is to um, work with integrity, of independence from uh, member states and with neutrality in dealing with the, with the issues. And they were a reflection of, of his uh, character. I said he had almost all of the characteristics of what we would regard now as a model executive um, head. The only one he, he didn't have is that he was uh, very shy and he was not a charismatic um, uh, figure. He was not a good public speaker. And he had difficulties in in handling that side of, of his work. He was not what we would today regard as somebody who was um, a great uh, communications expert. Uh, but uh, the Secretariat and Member States all recognized his scrupulousness, his fairness, and his um, attention to, to detail. All of those qualities allowed him to build up and, and maintain over 14 years. He was the longest serving of all of the executive um, heads, a permanent international civil service, which was widely recognized for its high standards of integrity, impartiality, and efficiency. And, and just as a, as a final little comment, when he died in 1951, the uh, General Assembly in New York happened to be in session, and they... Um, observed a minute of, of silence for him. His grave in Scotland, where he's, he's buried, the headstone makes no mention of the office of the Secretary General of the League of Nations, simply describing him as a great international civil servant. Wow. He was the Secretary General for 14 years. 
at the League of Nations. So maybe we could turn uh, our discussion over to the League itself. The work of the League was based on multilateralism, even if the term didn't exist yet at the time. What do you think the League of Nations brought as foundations for multilateralism? Well, I'm going to give three examples of that, and then I'm going to talk about the, the legacies of the League. The first example, which in fact stems from the nature of the Secretariat, which had been established, that the, the staff owed loyalty to the organization, is that of an international administration. Drummond built up the executive functions of the League. It was something which was completely new. It had not been envisaged in the covenant at the Paris Peace Conference. I think the governments of the time did not really anticipate what was going to be required after the First World War. So it was an opportunity waiting to be exploited. Let me just give three very quick examples. Firstly, the refugee problem was acute after the First World War, particularly in Eastern Europe. That needed to be dealt with. And Drummond realized that, recruited a Norwegian to um, help the League set up refugee um, programs. They worked uh, very well. And all of that, in the League's work on, on refugees and how to handle it, the conventions, all provided the basis for what is now uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for, for Refugees. The League was also asked to intervene in the economic and financial reconstruction programs of Hungary and Austria, who were in terrible economic uh, and financial state. They were bankrupt uh, countries. And the, the, the work which the League did there, it was in effect a forerunner of today's programs run by the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, namely that of financial intermediation between the, the private bankers willing to lend to national governments but imposing very strict uh, conditions and the uh, sovereignty of the, of the countries affected. And it was the League work which enabled those financial rescue programs to be put in place and to enable the, the countries of Eastern Europe to, to recover. And the third example is um, the the way the minorities treaties, which were also adopted in the Paris Peace Conference to protect the interests of the minorities, whether religious or ethnic, in the new states created as a result of the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian and the Ottoman empires at the end of the First World War. And there, again, it was unexpected that an international secretariat would be able to report on and administer the provisions of the minorities' uh, treaties. The work itself was not successful in the sense that it was politically very difficult, and you had um, elements of German revanchism and, and other aspects which have affected the way in which uh, the treaties, minority treaties could be um, carried out. But the basis, the work which they did, is the basis for today's administration of the Human Rights Conventions and the human rights um, uh, treaties. So the, the first is that of an international administration, which is very, very important and which is a foundation of um, a huge amount of what the United Nations and the agencies uh, do today. Secondly, Drummond saw the importance of public opinion. And Woodrow Wilson, the American president, said that the League would only be able to work if it was able to mobilize public opinion in favor. And therefore, Drummond allowed and, in fact, um, actively supported the development of public information programs by the League. The League's um, division, the Secretariat, 
uh, responsible for public information, in fact, was the largest of all of the league's divisions. And that was appreciated by the press. And that was the first time diplomacy was opened up to public opinion in the way in which it had not been envisaged at all in Paris, for example, or even before the First World War. And thirdly, he imagined a greater League of Nations in the sense of the work of what was then known as voluntary associations, but is now the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, and all of which they do to support the work of the international organizations and participate actively in, in, in the work. And all of that, in fact, dates from the League uh, days, particularly surprisingly the women's organizations. The women's organizations were, in fact, very influential in uh, Paris and subsequently. And there's a whole host of things which stemmed uh, from involving in the voluntary associations, NGOs, in the work of the, of the League. And that brings me to the, the question of the, of the legacies. Now, it's well known that the League has been rubbished out of history. The League has been regarded as a, as a failure. We often hear that term, and we've had a few library talks and lectures here at the library on the history of, of the League and multilateralism, and that this was quite a commonplace term. This is quite a commonplace term, that the League was a failure. It was publicly ignored at the time when the United Nations was being um, established. But that is for very understandable reasons. The United States was not a member, and Roosevelt was desperate to make sure that his new world organization was not associated with the League, connotations of the League, because he knew that he would not be able to get the charter adopted by the U.S. Senate if the same sort of feelings which led the Senate to reject the covenant of the League reared again in, in 1944-1945. Um, so from the American point of view, publicly they couldn't talk about the League. Nor the Soviet Union, which was the other major power at the, at the time, had been expelled from the League because it had invaded Finland in 1939. And it was the only country to be expelled by the League, so it was highly unlikely that Stalin would regard the League favorably. The British, on the other hand, knew what the League had done, what its successes and failures had been, and took a much more balanced and, in my view, correct view as to what was good about the League and what was not good about the League. The League failed because it failed to maintain peace and security in Europe in the 1930s, but the League did not fail in two other respects. Firstly, the nature of the International Secretariat, which in reality continued uninterrupted during the war years and passed as the basis for the new UN Secretariat with the same set of rules, the same set of procedures, and the same attributes of neutrality, objectivity, independence. The oath of office, which Drummond introduced in the League, was adopted almost word for word for the UN. And that, to me, illustrates the, the sense of, of continuity. But the other aspect of all of this is the programs and policies which the League had in place across a whole variety of subjects which also continued, uh, they transited almost without interruption from the old League to the new UN and the specialized agencies. And to me, that illustrates that that aspect of the League cannot be regarded as a failure because if it had been a failure, the member states in 1945 and subsequently were not of, agreed to absorb the League's work um, on a whole range of issues, whether it's to the UN proper or to the IMF, or to FAO, 
or to um, WHO, uh, UNESCO, the International Drugs Program, the human rights activities, the refugees, which I've already uh, mentioned as a whole host of examples of what the League did and which transited to the new um, generation of international organizations. So I think one can say that although multilateralism was not um, spoken about in those days, it provided the basis for the new generation of international organizations. These are some of the legacies of the League. Can you tell us about what you think are some of the legacies also of of Eric Drummond that the international community can still learn from or you still see now as a former UN staffer yourself? I mentioned the oath of office. I mentioned also what he managed to, to put in place, the, the values of integrity, of independence, of neutrality and objectivity. That's what he put in place. Obviously, how that is applied depends on the circumstances of the time. What is relevant in the 1920s is not relevant 100 years later. But remembering history, I, I think, can be very important. And the significance of celebrating Drummond's 14-year uh, tenure as, as Secretary General is the example he provides for international cooperation uh, today of a truly um, competent, independent, and impartial civil service. Is that which must continue to govern the multilateral uh, system uh, today. The challenges today are a different set of um, issues and, and so forth, but the, the principles and the characteristics are, are those which um, matter. Hopefully uh, our listeners will have a chance to think of this as a launching pad for learning more. If listeners would like to know more, where can they go? Do you have any uh, suggestions? Um, in addition to your own uh, you, the website you have yourself on the centenary of multilateralism, secondly, there's, uh, there is also... Uh, a website page uh, we have on on uh, Drummond, which um, provides more information about the book and about uh, Drummond. But and most most importantly and most simply, you have the League of Nations archives in this building. The archives are being digitalized, put online, and therefore they will be available to researchers the world over. And so there's an awful lot which can continue to be researched about the League. And there's a lot of information which remains unavailable. That's correct. And as you mentioned, the League of Nations archives are being digitalized. And we'll provide more information on that project in the podcast description for anyone who is interested. As well, John, you mentioned the centenary of multilateralism in Geneva. There is a website for all of the activities that are happening as part of the celebrations. You can go to multilateralism100.unog.ch to find out more information. And we'll also include that in our podcast description. Um, Thank you, John, for joining us. If there are just a few words you could uh, share about what you hope people will learn from what you've researched. What would you like to say as the final parting words for people now from what you've learned from the 100 years of, of multilateralism since the League began? Remember history. Remember what people did when faced with the challenges at that time. And always use um, experiences, relevant experiences, to see how best to handle the, the challenges of, of today. Learning from how our predecessors uh, faced the, the, their problems can often be very helpful indeed in trying to find ways of meeting uh, today's set of uh, difficulties and, and uh, challenges. Thank you.